Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. This episode of the Yankees Magazine podcast is brought to you by MLB at Bat. Yankees baseball is always live with MLB at Bat. Follow the action with game tracking and video highlights along with up to the moment stats, standings, breaking news and more. Download MLB at Bat today in the Apple App Store or Google Play. It's your number one app for Yankees baseball. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yankees Magazine Podcast. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the Deputy Editor for Yankees Magazine. Joining me right now, we have our Editor-in-Chief, Al St. Hello. Hello, Al. And of course, we have our Executive Editor, Nathan Makaborski. Hi, everybody. A lot of interesting stuff going on over this two-week stretch that we're about to start talking about. We are recording this, and we'll release it right in the middle of Hope Week, which is Absolutely one of the most remarkable, inspiring, fun, interesting things that the Yankees do every year, and we're celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. We also, coming up next week, we have the Yankees' celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, which birthed the LGBTQ rights movement. That's going to be a remarkable night here at the stadium and part of a major initiative the Yankees have been working on for more than a year now. I'm just so excited to be able to talk about the things that we as an organization have done this year and we'll continue to do moving forward. And then finally, we're going to talk about two stories that Al wrote for this month's issue, a story on Jason Giambi and one on Austin Romine. Yeah, a lot of good things going on around here this week. And, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of step back sometimes. We get so wrapped up in the day-to-day of baseball and looking at the team from a a close perspective. And uh, events like these, like Hope Week, help, uh, you know, put things in the right perspective and realize that, you know, baseball is just part of what we do. And, you know, this team really means a lot to a lot of people and can have a major impact. It's a fun place to come to work every week, but this week especially so, I would say. And that's one of the things I love about Hope Week is that it does such a good job of combining the off-field with the on-field. You know, it's not like Hope Week is something that we do during the off-season when, you know, we have... 20 weekend or 20 weeks to figure out how to pass some time. Now we're doing this right in the heart of the season. Every single player and coach is involved with it. You know, the front office, look, this is a busy week for us. We're closing our July issue right now, but we stop everything to make sure that we all participate in everything that they dream for hope week. And I, I know in my time here working for the Yankees and certainly additionally in my time before I started working for the Yankees, I've always just been amazed by, the, the events that they put together, 
and the people you get to interact with. You know, you can go back 10 years ago to the first year that we were doing this stuff to last year, just every year. One of the biggest memories I take from the season is the event that the event or events that I get to work for Hope Week. I agree with you. I've been here for all 10 of them, as has Nathan. And I think about some of the stories I've learned about uh, through the, the people's participation at Hope Week. And there's some of them. I'll admit, uh, maybe are not as memorable as others, but there's quite a few of them that I'll literally remember for the rest of my life because they're absolutely touching, they're heartwarming, and they're very, very inspirational. Some are sad. Some have had sad endings. Um, but what the Yankees have done and the people involved have done for the people whose you know, story have had sad endings is given them uh, quite a bit of happiness um, at the most difficult times. So it's a remarkable time, and uh, I can't believe it's 10 years, to be honest with you. We were talking about some of the people from the first year a couple minutes ago. Yeah, I remember covering the very first Hope Week event, the first day of the first Hope Week. And it was kind of surreal because up until that point, we had been kind of clued into the plans and how everything was going to happen. But to actually be sitting, it was like in a little apartment in the Bronx. There was a teacher by the name of Marco who had just done some really great things with uh, local kids and to see Mariano Rivera walk through the door into his apartment uh, it was like okay this is this is real now this is really happening it was sort of breaking down the, <laughs> the fourth dimension and seeing you know these Yankees who are larger than life who you know millions of people watch on TV every day uh, you know step out of the TV and into reality and that was just the beginning I mean it, it's really been incredible and I think it's so important for us as you know writers about this team you know it's really important to understand everything they do on the field and what it means but I know I've written several stories without mentioning hope we can anyway but in which the way I think about a player or the, the questions I have for a player are colored by something that I saw from him in the way he was interacting with, you know, some sick kids or the way he was like helping out a mother, you know, who was trying to corral her family. And look, we get, we get a lot of opportunities to see these guys away from the stadium. We have a lot of access to these players. And I think that's part of why we write great stories about these players. But there's no question that if you talk to some people, You'll find some people who have like cynical opinions about Hope Week and all these things. And, you know, that it, it's something that, you know, the Yankees are doing as a PR thing. And first off, I don't agree with that. But secondly, even if they were, who cares? Like the, right. that family that they surprise, those, those people who, you know, do work for no money, that, they, that, that the Yankees just show up one day and say, we're going to help you with this. Even if they were just doing it for a week of good PR, and they're not, but even if they were, awesome. I've said that so many times about different situations. And I agree with you. There's, that is not the motive here. I think we all know intimately the people who are responsible for it and who put it together. And, and that certainly was not their motive. But you're right. If it was, you can't take away the benefits that people have gotten from it. And I think that's tremendous. Yeah, John, you, you bring up a really good point about you kind of see players uh, in a different light after going through Hope Week events with them. Our media relations team does an outstanding job of, you know, organizing all these events and getting everybody where they need to be. And there's so many moving parts. But also, you know, to their credit, they it rarely feels rushed. You know, they always have, uh, they carve out a really uh, a large block of time for these players to, to interact with the, uh, the Hope Week honorees. And as observers, we get to see 
you know, how they interact with people and just, you know, there's no, there's no script, you know, they, you know, they need to be a certain place at a certain time, but beyond that, it's really up to them as to how they want to interact. And, uh, I mean, we've just seen countless, you know, examples of players who have just gone above and beyond. And you really see that, you know, their hearts are in the right place. One thing that always stands out to me, and you know, I'm not just saying this uh, to score some brownie points or anything like that. I think almost every event that I've done for Hope Week, uh, Jenny Steinbrenner has mm-hmm. been at. And she could show up at the end of this thing, present a check, and that would be a wonderful thing that she did for the Yankees. But every single time she's there from the beginning, interacting with the kids, playing with whoever it is, she's not just there as, okay, you know, the Yankees did something nice, let me get a good picture, give, give a little bit of money, and get out of here. She's... I don't want to say in the trenches other than, you know, last year at that muddy puddles thing when she <laughs> literally was in the trenches. Um, it is absolute full effort from everybody involved in this organization because it's an important thing. It's not just something that, you know, we sign a check for and put our name to. And actually, I find it a little strange maybe to segue into my own story. But that does get to a lot of what I was talking about in the feature that I had the honor of writing this month, uh, which is about the Yankees Stonewall Scholars Program, an initiative that the Yankees started with the Stonewall Inn to recognize five students, one from each of the five boroughs of New York, and give them a college scholarship. These are students who have shown leadership or allyship in the LGBTQ community. And the reason I tie this into the Hope Week story we're discussing is you know, they had an event on May 22nd at Stonewall, and I was speaking to, you know, the rep from the, or the li- liaison, I should say, from the Department of Education who worked with them on. And, you know, similar to what we said with Hopi, he was just saying, the Yankees could have written a check, and that would have been a remarkable thing. But instead, what happened is that the Yankees said, we are going to handle every detail of this. You know, working within the parameters of the Department of Education, and you'll do the things you have to do. But, you know, when it comes time to interview these kids for these scholarships, it's not going to be a couple of teachers and a couple of interns or people who have some time. We're going to send Brian Cashman and Gene Afterman, our general manager and our assistant general manager, to interview every single one of these kids whose, you know, application was chosen as a finalist in the six years that I've been with this team now. You get to see things like this happen. You get to see the way things work behind the scenes. And it's impossible not to be impressed by the commitment that this organization has to doing things, to doing the right things the right way. Stories like these that we're talking about here are the types of stories that, uh, you know, our readers, I know, enjoy regardless of what's going on on the field. Now, we've been fortunate here that uh, we haven't really had to cover too many losing seasons. I don't think any. But even if things weren't going well on the field, you know, you can take a lot of pride in the fact that if you're a Yankees fan, your team is, you know, making a huge impact off the field and changing a lot of lives for the better. I always enjoy when we're able to put in pieces of historical significance. Um, And, you know, John, really, I mean, this piece that you wrote for this month about you know, Stonewall, while it does focus a lot on the current initiative with the scholars scholarship program, uh, you had to do quite a bit of research, didn't you, for this one? And, and there's really a lot of great information in this piece about how we got to this point. Honestly, it was the best part of the story. Um, I kind of, you know, lucked into it a little bit. I, I had written, you know, for the first few issues of this year, I'd written something where between two and three features per issue. And I knew that this was going to be a big one, so I asked if I could just do one feature in the June issue. And I was able to use that time to just, I mean, sit at my desk and watch movie after movie, documentary, read book, just literally sitting there just reading, you know, primary, secondary sources and things like that. I went to 
I didn't even get to put this into the story, but I went to an exhibit at um, the New York Public Library they were doing. There are things like that all over the city. And I just tried to immerse myself in this period of 50 years ago, which, you know, I'll say, thankfully, feels like a very long time ago. And obviously, one thing that I don't want to say I learned while writing the story, but one thing I was certainly faced with while writing the story is that you have to be careful writing about all the progress that's been made because there's a lot of people who are in a lot of danger. One young woman who I was interviewing for it pointed that out to me and she called me on it and, you know, essentially she was the scholarship winner from Staten Island and she said, you know, there's positive things and it's wonderful, but, you know, people like me are in danger, not just, you know, in far-flung places of the world, but in this country too. And, you know, it was sobering and you have to step back and say, you know, let's talk about why we're doing this though, because there are real problems that existed 50 plus years ago and a lot changed that night at Stonewall, but not everything changed. And it's truly remarkable to see the picture that leads our story of, you know, these five incredible, incredible students. And one of the students is wearing a mask and this person, you know, they're not out to their family and they don't feel safe to be out to their family. And you see the picture and it hits you that, you know, there's only so far that we've gotten. To that question of why, um, you know, why did the Yankees want to do this this way? And, and why now, John? What were some of the answers you were able to to uncover in terms of just, you know, what the, the motivation is and what the impact hopefully can be? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's not a simple answer. And it's going to feel a little bit like a dodge, however you answer this. Because the fact of the matter, just to state facts here, entering the season, the Yankees were one of two teams that had never done any kind of pride night or anything of the sort. And, you know, I will tell you, the Yankees' response to that question, which came up nearly every year, um, was that they didn't want to do it because they didn't want to create categories at the stadium. They wanted everybody to feel welcome every single night at the stadium. And you can take from that what you will. And there are people who say that makes sense, and there are people who say that doesn't, and that's fine. But but that was what the team was saying. This is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. World Pride is coming here this year. Stonewall is obviously, it, it, it is a national, it's become a global event, but it's you know very much a New York event. And you know the Yankees both saw an opportunity to reach out to a community that has been asking the Yankees to reach out to them for a long time, while at the same time looking at ways that, you know, to, to put a Yankees touch on it. And, and, and not just, again, and this gets back to what I was saying with Hope, and I hate to keep repeating myself, the Yankees could have so easily had a Pride Night and said, you know what? Sure. Happy Pride Night. And here it is. We'll sell a couple of Rainbow Yankees hats and we'll donate a couple of ticket proceeds and it'll be done. And maybe there are people and, and there are people who I interviewed, frankly, who said, yes, they should do that. In addition to everything else, they should still do that. And that's fine. That 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 I'm not going to argue with anyone's opinion on that. But what the Yankees decided to do was say, why don't we turn this into a bigger thing than, you know, one night? I think it would be nice if the Yankees had a pride night. And I think that this is undoubtedly a good thing the Yankees are doing to build a partnership with, you know, the Yankees, just a massive, world-renowned New York organization, New York entity with Stonewall, the Stonewall Inn, which is not just an idea and not just a, a history marker, but it's a it's a bar you can go to tonight and you can have a beer there. This past weekend, Taylor Swift showed up on the stage and played a song there. You know, it, it's a living, breathing piece of history, which, you know, at the risk of sounding unbelievably corny, is what the Yankees are too. I mean, the Yankees are writing history here every night. Stonewall wrote history certainly 50 years ago, past June 28th, but it continues to do it also. And I think that it's really special that the Yankees 
found a way to truly build a partnership in this process. And I think one of the great things about the partnership, you know, you talked about the one student earlier who really was was not ready to come out. And obviously there is still, uh, as far as we've come, there's still a long way to go. There's still fear, there's still trepidation, and, there, and there's still people in the world who are not accepting. And I think what's one of the great things about the Yankees' involvement now in their partnership is I think it will open more people's eyes to becoming accepting and to uh, ex- accepting people for what they are and who they are. And I think that's a, a great thing. And it's not a small thing to even go to a concession stand at Yankee Stadium and buy the Brooklyn Brewery Stonewall Inn IPA. It's not a small thing that there is, you know, a rainbow flag beer. And maybe you don't know the story of Stonewall, but maybe that causes you to ask someone or to look it up. You know, it's not small when the public address announcer at Yankee Stadium in a pregame ceremony is talking about, is just saying the words lesbian and gay and transgender and all these things. These matter. You know, this is about visibility. I had a interesting experience where I really, I was standing in the clubhouse one day during clubhouse availability and I was saying to myself, you know, which players can I go and talk to about this? And, you know, I don't want to make too big of a thing about it, but like, you know, my, my, thought was pure if you want to say I I just didn't want to make someone uncomfortable by going up to them and asking them questions that you know they didn't necessarily want to talk about or didn't know enough to talk about but you know then it struck me like you know you know what the Yankees as an organization are doing this like is it unfair of me to be thinking so little of these players that I'm wondering which of them can handle it and the person honestly who I, I found had the most to say about Stonewall was Brett Gardner and it is impossible not to sound bad possible when I'm saying this, but, you know, Brett Gardner is a, you know, old country boy from Holly Hill, South Carolina. And you think to yourself, I, I don't know how Brett Gardner grew up. I, I don't. But I have no doubt that playing for the New York Yankees for the number of years that he's played for, for being becoming a leader in this clubhouse and surrounding himself with the diversity of this clubhouse has changed him in a lot of ways and has made him someone who has different life experiences than he had when he was growing up. And if you think about the ways that that can happen, you know, just inside the baseball clubhouse and you think about the platform that these players have outside the baseball clubhouse, you know, it really makes you realize just how important it is that these players are saying, you know, are talking about this stuff and are saying, you know, they want to be allies in this struggle. And frankly, statistically, maybe some of them aren't even allies. Maybe some of them are members of the community and that's wonderful too. But, you know, it's just, there is a huge, huge opportunity for some very, very visible New York Yankees to make a major difference in some people's lives. And I think it's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, you kind of hit it on the head, John, in, in terms of just, you know, how big an entity the Yankees are and, you know, what kind of impact this can have because of that. You know, I thought among the the many great quotes you have in this story, John, is the one from uh, Mayor de Blasio's wife, uh, Shirlene McRae, who basically said like, you know, these scholarships may be $10,000 each, but they're worth way more than that. Um, Just, you know, kind of speaking to that fact. And I also thought the input that you got from Billy Bean really added a lot to this story. You've spoken to him in the past for other features. What did he add in your mind um, in terms of you know perspective for what the Yankees are doing here? We have to really utilize that momentum to continue you know, to create a dialogue that is uh, respectful and build bridges with other organizations. I, I, I was, I've ridden in the in, uh, New York Pride Parade a few times 
But last year, wearing my MLB shirt and my cap and with all my coworkers, it was it was pretty profound. It was emotional for me. And, and um, you know, if I'd have been sitting in a, you know, dugout somewhere as a player and saw that, like, image, it would have changed, yeah. changed my life. I have spoken to Billy a lot of times. And for those who don't know, Billy Bean, he played about six years in the majors. And then when he retired – he came out and wrote a book just about his incredible struggle of, you know, being a major league baseball player in the closet. And he just, you know, the personal tragedies he endured and everything like that. And now he is a vice president, senior vice president of major league baseball. And, you know, I think for a while his title was, you know, the ambassador of inclusion. And really his job is just to go, you know, spread the message of inclusivity and all these things. Yeah. I, I sat with him in his office for about two hours. And, and first off, like among everything else we're talking about, I was able to go into the offices of Major League Baseball to sit in the big windowed office of an executive at the league to speak about LGBTQ issues. You know, that, that's a pretty remarkable it's thing. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a wonderful just, thing just, in and of itself. But, you know, one thing that we talked about was just what I wanted to know is what any of this stuff would have meant to him as a player. And he, he, he flat out said first off that he wouldn't have retired if it existed. And, you know, his job, his life is about not pushing people out of the closet but before they're ready, but helping create an environment where the world is welcoming to them when they are ready to get out. And he was just extremely impressed by how organic this, you know, program was to the Yankees. That, you know, they really built something here that wasn't just about, you know, putting their name on a, a program that looks good, but to say, how can we create a system of building this partnership? And, and, and you know, the, the idea that he kept going back to with me was – some of these kids are going to come work, maybe not for the New York Yankees, but, you know, for baseball. I think it jumps right to the front of, of our most profound statement of, of not only loving their community, but owning uh, history and empowering. I mean, they're going to change five lives forever. And those people are going to look at the Yankees. Those five individuals are going to look at the Yankees in a way that is unforgettable, you know, not not images of. Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio and, you know, Derek Jeter or whatever, however old you are, but as someone who invested in me, I mean, it's going to have such a profound effect. And that and that's why how each of our clubs choose to convey a message of acceptance or an inclusive message, they shouldn't have to be defined specifically in exactly the same way. Right. I mean, this was really something that the Yankees, this is so organic to, to them the community, their place over the last, you know, 100 years here, but to be like right down the lane, it, it just feels so like natural in a way. And and I think that there's going to be people that read about this, even in this city, that are going to be blown away, you know, and think like, wow, baseball has come a long way. I, I, I've loved every opportunity I've had to speak with Billy about this stuff, and I look forward to many more in the future. And it was, it was just very gratifying for me to see the way that he felt about this program because I'll be honest, you know, in my head, I'm reading a lot of press releases and I'm reading a lot of this stuff and, you know, who knows, maybe I'm just like swallowing, you know, a press release and, you know, and, and, and to see the impact that he was saying it was going to have and really changing lives to, to ca- contrast that with an interview I did with Martin Boyce, who was, you know, there for the night of the riots and, you know, a New Yorker. And he was just talking about, I didn't get all this stuff into the story, but he's talking about just his, the way he was as a kid would marvel at Yankees players. You know, he saw, he remember seeing them once at the team, at a hotel and he like, you know, was looking through the window and he decided to go in with some friends 
just to see these incredible athletes. Well, the Yankees are as American as apple pie. I mean, they're not only a home team, there's always a home in our hearts for them. They help make New York City great. And I grew up with that greatness. And even to gaze upon them as a child, to look up at them. I didn't even ask for a signature, as other kids did. I just gazed. These were gods. I mean, not Ubermensch in a Nazi way, but just God. It was amazing in the Greek way. It was a beautiful thing to see. It was one of the great moments of my life to get in there. Even though I played with dolls, I wasn't really interested. I only went with the boys because I knew we were going to get in. But we got in. And I was stunned. I just looked around me. I remember Mickey Mantle sipping his scotch, I think it was. And I remember them able to talk but still be nice to us, to recognize us without, you know, getting silly about it, you know. It was just wonderful. And I asked him, you know, did you ever go, you know, to, to the ballpark or anything like that? Or was that even a thought for you? And he was just like, oh, no, we would, we would all go. Yankees are New York history. Yankees w- would win games that would almost make kids in wheelchairs able to walk. You know, the game was, yeah, many, so many games were, you know, baseball fans, too. We generally, my crowd wasn't. But we all knew the game. We all knew the names. Our parents watched it. It's hand in hand uh, in New York City, the Yankees and New York City, because our dads would take us because, you know, they were training us to be straight. He laughed. It was a laugh line for him. He's a funny guy. But, you know, it it just it's lazy for a second when you hear that. And this is the opposite of that. This is come join us and be yourself. Mm -hmm. Come out and be you. We want to welcome you as yourself. We don't want to change you. We don't want to make you fit into our community. We want, you know, you to feel like there's a place for you here. John, uh, you know, Brian Cashman is obviously a, a very busy guy, uh, especially <laughs> during baseball season. Swung a trade this week for Edwin Encarnacion. How involved was he with all this? Because, uh, you know, I do feel like these issues are important to him. So, Well, first off, I, I should mention the first time I ever met Billy Bean was at the Harvey Milk Hedrick Martin Institute in New York City, which is basically a public school you know, for LGBTQ kids, many of whom have been, you know, kicked out of their houses and things like that. It's just, you know, it's a hard place in a lot of ways. And Billy Bean was giving a presentation there and Brian Cashman and Gene Afterman went there. And that was when I first met Billy. And um, what he told me subsequently is that nobody has been a bigger ally to him in his time. First off, just becoming comfortable enough with himself to go back and work for baseball, but also becoming an executive with baseball. You know, he remembers the first time he was introduced to all the general managers at a GM meeting. Um, you know, upon taking his new role, he had Brian be the one to introduce him. It's wonderful. And, and Brian, you know, it, it, it's not a small thing for him. He's extremely involved with this. Like I said, you know, these interviews. So they whittled down um, some 150, I believe, applicants into something like 26 from which they would choose five. So they interviewed 26 people here over the course of two days. And Brian and Gene sat in on every single interview mm-hmm. and just helped decide the winners. And at the there was a, the ceremony at Stonewall on May 22nd. He introduced, you know, one of them and... This, this is a huge priority for him. He feels in a lot of ways, you know, as the general manager, in a lot of ways, he, he's the custodian of, you know, the Yankees brand in some ways. You know, he's the one who puts together the most visible part of what the New York Yankees are. And he was telling me just, you know, if they can't make Yankee Stadium a place where everybody feels comfortable and everybody feels welcome, then nothing else matters. I think it's um, a remarkable job you did on this story. You know, I'm not that envious of all the research you had to do. <laughs> it was great. But I am envious of the day that you got to spend at Stonewall. Um, 
and you know, one great thing as you as you mentioned is I'm I'm, I'm envious, but can also go and have a beer there whenever I want. And I look forward to doing that. Can you kind of describe the scene that day and what what was it like to be there to cover uh, the selections and just be you know you know at the bar that day? It was remarkable, and a lot of what was so remarkable about it was that you know I had spent the previous month or so just reading about this place every day, and I and I had never been in there. I'm for no reason, I had never been. I just don't know why I had never been in there. Well, there's only fifty thousand bars in New York. Fair so point. You can't get to yeah. everyone. <laughs> but you know, I, I had never been in. But it looks different from the way they described it in um, the books I was reading. I, you know, it's two stories now. I think it used to be um, wider in a sense that it, there were more rooms downstairs, whereas now it's just an upstairs and a downstairs. But it was a ceremony to honor the five scholarship recipients, and they each spoke. And, you know, Randy Levine from the Yankees, Brian Smith from the Yankees, Brian Cashman from the Yankees, the First Lady of New York City, the Chancellor of the Department of Education, Richard Carranza. It was just so much love for these five kids that everyone was showing. And some of them were there with their parents. Some of them were there with their friends. Four of them were there openly, and one wasn't. But anytime you hear a story about Stonewall, it's usually about how packed it is and how Mm -hmm. cramped it is in there. And believe me, that afternoon was no exception. But it was just so inspiring to see all five of these kids, including the one in in the mask. This person still did give a speech speaking about their journey. It it was a remarkable event. It, It was the type of thing that you just hope everyone gets to see. And it is good for baseball that not everyone likes the Yankees. It is good for baseball that, you know, the Yankees kind of sometimes have this reputation as, you know, the big bad or whatever. And, and, and that's good. Every so often, though, it's nice for people to see, you know, this this part of the Yankees, that the Yankees are also this. That, you know, it's not just spending all the money and getting all the players and all this stuff and winning all the games and yada, 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 or, you know, the bleacher creatures and things like that. But, you know, sometimes what the New York Yankees means is this. And that, and that was a special thing for me to see. I think it's a special thing for everyone else to see. And I think on June 25th at the stadium, when you know they have the big celebration for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots, it's going to be wonderful, I think, that night too, just to see the way that you know the Yankees are a part of New York City, and being a part of New York City means being a part of Stonewall and everything that Stonewall represents. And I think that's a, it's a special time for all of us to be here, you know, for what is hopefully the first year of a very, very long partnership. And I, I know it's an honor for me to speak to all the people, to speak to Stacey Lentz, who is one of the owners of the bar for a long time, to get to know her a little bit, to speak to a couple of people who are at Stonewall, to speak to Yankees players who, who want to learn about this stuff. Uh, it, it was just a great opportunity. That was a great story. Thank you. Awesome job, John. Uh, the story is called No Place Like Home. It's in the June issue of Yankees Magazine, or you can find it online by going to yankees.com slash magazine. Thanks, Nate. When we get back, we will discuss how stories about Jason Giambi and Austin Romine, so stick with us. Hi, this is Aaron Judge. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. The Yankees Magazine Podcast is also brought to you by MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market regular season game live or on demand with MLB.tv. Your subscription includes MLB at Bat Premium, allowing you to stream live baseball on your favorite supported devices. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Visit MLB.tv for details.
And welcome back. So we just had a, a very off-field, although hopefully not too off-field, but an off-field discussion. And now it's time to, you know, go back to Yankees on the field. Al, you know, in your travels this past offseason, one of the really awesome opportunities I think you had, and I think you'll agree, was, you know, getting to spend some time with one of the biggest signings by the Yankees in recent memory. Um, certainly in a lot of ways, he represents that old guard of Yankees getting every top free agent. Um, but, you know, I just remember when, you know, he became a free agent, everyone was like, you know, fitting in for pinstripes right away. And sure enough, it happened. And, you know, he, he had an interesting career with the team. But I know I speak for myself. I think I speak for both of you. Always just one of the best guys to talk to. Always one of the most interesting guys. We're talking about Jason Giambi, of course. It's been years since he last played here, but he is coming back here this weekend for Old Timers Day. So we thought it would be a great time to discuss Jason Giambi and Al the story that you got to do with him over the offseason. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you were here obviously when he was playing for the Yankees and you spoke to him years after now. You know, what were your impressions of him back when he was just a regular guy around the clubhouse here? When he was here, he was one of my favorite players to cover. He was one of my favorite people to be around in the clubhouse. Um, back then, I, I wasn't writing uh, the type of in-depth features that we do now uh, where you're traveling to players' homes in the offseason and, getting to really spend more than uh, you know half hour here or there with them at their lockers. But he always remained you know one of my single favorite players that I had ever been around. Um, and the reason why is very simple. He was very, very kind. He would go out of his way to make sure that a young publications guy, 24, 25 years old, always got not just what he needed, but everything that he wanted out of an interview, out of the time with him. And he cared a lot. And I didn't expect that. You know, I didn't expect that from a top free agent in the game who came here, was a superstar player, had all the publicity in the world, all the money in the world, all the fame in the world. And, you know, he was humbled in his career. But for me, he was that way before he was humbled. He was that way when he was at the very, very top. Um, you know, he kind of had a, you know, looked like a tough guy and, you know, had this, you know, this look to him like, you know, I could never have imagined. I would get the, the type of time and quality of time that I would end up getting with him back then, but he was tremendous. We'll get, we'll get to the details of your story in a minute, but just to build on what you just said, the very first baseball feature I ever wrote, which was back in 2003, was about promotions at baseball stadiums, some of the wacky things that would happen. And um, I know where you're going yeah. with that. I mean, <laughs> Nate, Nate, Nate was... <laughs> <laughs> so... The way I led the story was that at Yankee Stadium, they were giving away celebriducks, the Jason Giambi celebriduck, which is essentially, you know, a cross between like a bobblehead and a rubber ducky. It would be a rubber duck like in, you know, a jersey with the number on it and a beak and everything like that. And it was just the silliest thing you've ever seen. And so, you know, I went out to the stadium and, and I had interviewed some baseball players before, but never like, you know, with the idea of a feature. And I, I don't think I'd ever interviewed. There weren't very many players at the level of fame and prestige of Jason Giambi then, but I, I don't think I had interviewed anyone even close to that. And I just remember, and obviously, you know, old Yankee Stadium clubhouse really cramped. You know, you couldn't just like go pull, uh, you, you couldn't really go interview a player without everyone knowing it. And I'm just saying to myself, like, I'm going to interview Jason Giambi about a rubber duck. <laughs> and I, I was just, I mean, I was terrified. And I go there and I, I, I knew by reputation he was quote unquote a nice guy, but you never know what that's going to mean. Yeah. You know? Well, you yeah. never know what it's going to mean when you, when the fir your first question is, you know, your thoughts about a duck. That's Absolutely. rubber. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And I just go to him and I, I'm telling you, I don't know if he just like saw how nervous I was or saw how scared I was, but he just basically like, you know, wrapped me in a cocoon of like kindness, um, just, you know, helping me through this. And I mean, I, I was, uh, it wasn't like I was like stammering or anything like that. It was just like, you know, you feel ridiculous when you're asking these questions. And I'll always remember it, it, it was as though he was saying to himself, like, I know that this guy needs a quote right here, like a real, real knockout quote. And he was just like, Hopefully, I'm going to be swimming in a lot of tubs tonight. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, th- thank, really you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that sums him up. I mean, he's just – that's the kind of guy he is. He's, he's a tremendous guy. I've never interviewed him or, or anyone else about rubber duckies, but that is my take on him as well. It's just so accommodating. goes out of his way. I think I still have my Jason Giambi celebrity. Oh, that's right. yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> probably a collector's item now you can probably sell that on yeah. ebay or something that's too too too, too personal a story for me <laughs> more to the point you know when you bring yourself out to speak to jason giambi in 2019 you know what are you looking to get from him now i really wanted to get him to talk about his overall time with the yankees which included some great seasons um, some seasons where he was one of the most productive players in baseball and, and lived up to the hype and the potential that came with him signing here. But I also wanted to talk to him, more importantly, about two other things. Where he is now, which obviously I knew where he was because I was at his house, but what Jason Giambi does now, all these years after being one of the biggest stars in the game in New York City with the New York Yankees, what's his life like now? Because he kind of blinked and 10 years went by and he hadn't been here. And what is he doing? And, you know, for all the good and all the bad that kind of encapsulated his time with the Yankees, he almost was a little bit forgotten about, I felt like, over the last couple of years. So I, I wanted to know what he was doing, what his life was about today. And I also wanted to go back now and just kind of see how he reflected on not just the good times, but some of the bad decisions he made. And those are very, very well-publicized decisions, and the, and the narrative was really interesting then and I thought would be really interesting now, all these years later, to look back on his thoughts on some of the tough things that he had to do as a result of some really bad decisions. And look, you know, I think that one thing that is – it has to be a part of the Jason Giambi story is – if not for, you know, some of the issues he had, whatever, I have no doubt that he would not be a little league coach right now. He would be a, a big league manager because over the last few years of his career, you know, I actually had a different perspective than you in terms of the way he kind of like disappeared through my previous job. I you know, had chances to go around the league a little bit more and you would see him in Colorado. You would see him in Cleveland. And he was as close as you will see in this era to a player manager. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just he was absolutely revered by these players and he revered them too. And he was absolutely saying like, you know, I might hit a couple home runs and I might contribute a little bit, but my job here is simply to be a leader to these, you know, kids and teach them how to play and teach them how to do all this stuff. And like you said, plenty has been written, including in this story about the mistakes he made and, you know, some of the problems he had. I have no doubt that he's going to be back in the majors. The minute he decides he's ready to, and that, you know, I know he's enjoying coaching his kids right now and all these things. The minute he decides he's ready to come back to the league, you know, he is going to be a special, special coach. I I agree with you. And I, you know, when you talk about, you know, the decisions he made, you know, I talked to him last year at old timers day about going out to his house, spending a day with him. And he was very amenable to it. And, you know, we had a couple phone conversations leading up to me going out there And I did ask him 
in those phone conversations just to kind of see what kind of interview I was going to get. Was it really going to be a comprehensive story about his career or was it going to just focus on the positive aspects? And obviously I hoped it would be comprehensive and I hope hoped that I could ask him the tough questions. And he was completely 100% open to those questions being asked and to answering them. That didn't surprise me. And the reason why is because really the narrative of his career changed when he was a player who came out and admitted to making some poor decisions, you know, involving PEDs. And really the, the biggest takeaway that I had was I talked to him about it. And the way that I posed the first question was we really live in a society where it's not fashionable and it's not common for people who have made poor decisions or made mistakes to be accountable. And I really applauded him for his accountability afterwards and asked him what, you know, precipitated those decisions, why he was so accountable when others really were not and how that affected him. And that was probably the biggest and best part of our conversation because what he talked about was how liberating it was, number one, for him to be able to say, look, I made a bad decision. And he was very clear in that, it, hey, I didn't make a mistake. I made a bad decision. It was a conscious decision. I take responsibility for it. But by admitting it, it not only freed him because there was nothing else to say, there was nothing else to ask him. It was out there. But it also enabled him to make a comeback. He was coming back both from injury and this admission. Um, but it allowed him to come back to Major League Baseball to get support of managers, players, ownership, George Steinbrenner, the, the Steinbrenner family, and allowed him to, to try to rebound and become a great player again, which, of course, he did. In the truest of the sense, it set me free. Yeah. You know, there was, I didn't have to talk about it anymore. I didn't have to, like, there was nothing that nobody could dig up. There was nothing, you know, it was, it was freeing. Yeah. You know, I, I really have always said that there's a sense of I had to walk through the darkness to get to the light. And it helped me out, I think, like you were saying, I don't know how many more fans I gained or whatever you call that would say, hey, I really appreciate the way you handled yourself, because now I can tell my son, when you make a mistake, you tell the truth. That was kind of followed up by him, um, you know, getting up from the couch, you know, with his baby daughter sitting on his lap and going into his home office and bringing back a folder. And in the folder were letters from mothers and fathers and, and grandparents of children who had made mistakes, some big mistakes and some small mistakes. And he talked about how, that was some, something that meant more to him than almost anything involving this situation, that people now have such a great respect for him because they can go to their kids and say, it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay to make a poor decision if you're accountable for it. And look at how this guy made a really bad decision but was accountable for it, and look at what has happened in his life. So there was literally proof of you know, what it meant to him and what it means to him and really what it means to, uh, I think, the world of athletics. He's certainly got a good story to tell. And, and there are lessons to be learned from, you know, everything that he went through and how he handled everything, which is what led us to the headline for this story. The greatest <laughs> lesson, lesson of all, you know, and of course, you know, you get to into his entire Yankees career as well. And, you know, how he became a Yankee and some of those great moments in pinstripes. I don't think I realized. So he, he grew up a Yankee fan, huh? He grew up a Yankees fan. His dad was just a 
tremendous fan of Mickey Mantle and, and idolized Mickey Mantle. His dad was very involved in his life and his brother Jeremy's life uh, on the field. So yeah, he, he kind of really had the dream of coming to the New York Yankees. Two, two games in particular of his will always stick out in my mind. I mean, that first real kind of welcome to New York moment where he hits the grand slam in the 14th inning. I don't know. That one, I'll never forget where I was. For that. I was like, the whole place went nuts when that happened. And then, of course, I mean, the, probably the greatest sporting event I'll ever see, Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS. You know, there were so many contributors in that game, and uh, he was among the biggest, you know, at least early in the early part of that game anyway. I mean, the Yankees might not have even had a shot to come back if not for his contributions with the two home runs. But he tells a funny story in this <laughs> about <laughs> he almost didn't make it there for that game, did he? <laughs> no, he almost didn't. Uh, there was a water main break uh, somewhere in Manhattan nearby where he lived, or I should say somewhere in between his residence and Yankee Stadium. And, you know, like a lot of players who do not live in New York City permanently, they're not from New York City, their ability to navigate from wherever they're staying for the season to Yankee Stadium, especially then, is usually just there's one route and that's all they know. They don't know alternate routes, uh, at least off the top of their head. And when something goes wrong, or in this case, terribly wrong, you know, they're kind of uh, <laughs> in trouble, let's say. So this is the biggest game of his life, literally. And oh, yeah. that counts Little League, high school, and college, and minors, and majors, and, and all everything in between. And it's the biggest game of his life, and he's sitting in traffic and quickly realizing that he's in serious, serious jeopardy of not getting to Yankee Stadium, not just for batting practice, but for the game. And in fact, he missed batting practice. And that's why, you know, as one of the stars of the in the lineup, he batted seventh in that game because Joe Torre didn't know, you know, really where to put him after missing batting practice. But what's fascinating was just, you know, kind of what what does a major league star player do when they're stuck in horrible, horrible traffic. You know, Roger Clemens has a great story when he pitched for the Red Sox and was stuck in traffic. And, you know, he was a, he was a, a great runner and always ran all the time and ran a, bu- a couple miles every day. And his wife was driving him and he just grabbed his sneakers and ran to Fenway Park. Well, Jason Giambi wasn't about to do that. So he called, you know, our clubhouse um, equipment manager, Rob Kakuza and you know, what the heck do I do? And they sent a police escort and Jason describes it as like the parting of the Red Sea and got him here. And Joe Torrey was waiting in his office for Jason and Jason thought he was in trouble, but Joe was just laughing at him for all that he had gone through to that point. So the story again is the greatest lesson of all. If you would like to read it, you can go to yankees.com slash magazine. More importantly, if you go to eBay, you can pick up a Jason Giambi celebrity duck for the low, low price of eleven ninety nine. You got to see this oh, thing. Wow. I'm telling you. It's completely amazing. I have one of them in my basement. I will sell it to you for more than $11.99. We should also mention that the story appears in the June issue of Yankees Magazine, which will have a very special cover on Sunday when Jason Giambi returns to Yankee Stadium for Old Timers Day. We we got a really nice picture last year uh, on Old Timers Day of Jason with Nick Swisher and Johnny Damon and uh, made for a really great cover shot for um, a, a special edition of uh, our June magazine that'll be on sale at the ballpark on Sunday. So we'll, we'll see Jason then. And if you're here, pick up a copy of the magazine and read the story. 
But, you know, while we're talking about popular Yankees, there's never going to be anyone more popular, you know, the saying goes, than the backup. You know, the backup is always, um, you know, the guy you kind of look to anytime something's going wrong. And in the case of Austin Romine, frankly, last year, there was a lot of reason to question the starter in Gary Sanchez, who was having just a really, really rough season all year last year, at the same time that Austin Romine was probably having his best year. You know, this year, Gary Sanchez is back to being just a remarkably consistent and productive player, but Austin Romine still fills an incredibly important and, as the headline says, consistent role on this team. Al, Jason Giambi was gung-ho, come out here, let's talk. Austin Romine, less so. With Jason Giambi, I think I got everything I wanted. I got a, a full day with him at his house, got to be around him, got to be around his family, like you said, got to really ask him anything that I wanted. You know, with Austin Romine, you know, he and his wife were having a baby this past off season. I wanted to do this, a similar type of story with him in his in his house in California and really spend a lot of time there. But to his credit, he said, look, we'll do whatever you want in, in spring training. I'll give you as much time as you need in, in, in spring training and really gave me a, a spectacular interview in spring training. And I did my best to make as good a story out of it as I could. But to his credit, he, he gave me a great opportunity to do that with a really wonderful interview. It is a good story. Austin is you know, a really interesting and nice guy. He's not the easiest to write about because, you know, he doesn't really like talking about himself and he doesn't really like talking about other players also. You'll ask a question, you know, what what, what do you think about this? And they'll say, go ask him. Uh, and, you know, he's not doing it to be punchy. He's not doing it to be difficult. I think it's just he doesn't like trying to put himself into other people's shoes. He doesn't, he definitely doesn't like answering questions and hypotheticals. He doesn't like trying to explain how someone else might be viewing a situation. You know, when you're Aaron Judge, who's a lot, in a lot of ways the same way okay well Aaron let's talk about then the 52 home runs you know it's it's it frankly it's just different when you're interviewing Austin Romine because a lot of what he does is not necessarily reflected in just what you can see on the field but it's what happens behind the scenes but he doesn't love talking about that so I think he did a really good job of getting him to talk about kind of why he doesn't like talking about that stuff I'd love if you you know spoke a little bit about that yeah that was you know kind of how the interview started I mean we sat down after you know again months of trying to get him to do something in California the offseason ended spring training began and when spring training began I certainly realized I had thrown the white flag I wasn't going you know do a story with him in California and when we finally sat down in spring training he you know, he's very almost apologetic. Like, look, I really don't like to talk about myself at length for feature stories because, and I totally, totally respected this because, I, you know, he he doesn't want to seem overconfident. He doesn't want to seem like he's made it. I'm going to hit you both with, I think it's both. I think he has a very difficult situation, which is both those things. He doesn't want to seem overconfident, but he also never wants to give the impression that he's okay with being a backup. And exactly. I think that those are two things that are very much in opposition to each other when you try to speak to him. Yeah, I mean, I think in this case, he, I, I felt or I got the sense he didn't want to boast about the things that he had accomplished because he didn't want it to be looked at in both of those veins, like that he was satisfied with that, but also that he was projecting he was going to continue to do that or that he was going to do better than that because he just wants his play to really speak for itself, not him talking about what he's going to do or what he has done. And he's a very confident person, but his humility really defines him when you when you sit down and talk to him and I was really impressed by that that's really all you can do is go out there and play hard um, I've prided myself on that uh, my father always taught me to play the game the right way wear the hat the right way wear the jersey the correct way and respect the team that you're playing for so I hope that people when they see see me play that they see a guy play the game the right way and play as hard as he can you know when we sat down he talked a lot about his wife who's been with him 
for the whole journey through the miners. And one of the things that she imparted to him was that he should do this interview, which was a surprise to me. I didn't see that coming. I didn't ask him, who told you to do this interview? You know, that wasn't <laughs> one of my questions. But, you know, he confided that right off the bat that, you know, he was probably not going to do it unless she pushed him to do it and said, look, this is the right thing to do. This is a team publication. It's going to be a great story. Give this guy a chance. And he did. And and so I'm, I'm thankful to her <laughs> as much as I am, am him, I guess. But, you know, speaking of, of his wife, really, you know, she's such a big part of what he's done in his career. And he struggled, you know, mightily after having some back problems when he was in the minors and his career really went sideways. And then downward and to the point where he was designated for assignment and he kind of hit rock bottom in terms of his professional career, but really had a great conversation with her um, one off season and picked it up from there and started ascending very, very rapidly to becoming a really consistent player, not in Scranton or Trenton, but with the New York Yankees. And that's gone on now for, you know, uh, three years. I was very fortunate to marry a wonderful woman uh, who's been through the entire minor league system with me, all the ups and downs, all the way from low A all the way up to the big leagues till now. I've had a, you know, I've had a, she's my rock. She, she's my solid point that I can go and talk to. The conversations we had and, and kind of how she put it in perspective. She helped put it in perspective. Um, you have opportunity here. You know, let's let's get this let's get this going. Nothing too aggressive or you know, coming after me. Just conversations we had and then taking that and like I said people can give you the tools but whether you choose to use them or better yourself is completely up to you as a a man so I just kind of figured out what was needed what needed to be done to to get my career back on track yeah it's cool you know kind of similar to the Giambi story it's this article is one that I think you'll read and and you could learn something from I mean just the way he's able to kind of put things in perspective now you know he's a a veteran guy he's a father and he's you know i'm sure in the when he was in his younger days coming up through the minors and dealing with these issues he probably was still thinking you know i'm going to be a, a starting catcher in the big leagues and you know how come things aren't going well and you know he was not really maybe as well equipped to handle it then as he is now and now he can kind of look and see like yeah gary sanchez is a that's an all-star catcher right there this is my role and I'm going to do my best that I can in my role. And one thing that I always find when I interview him is he's very clear, especially last year I did a Q&A with him and he was, you know, just saying this team is better when Gary Sanchez is in the starting lineup. And if this team is going to go where it needs to, it's going to be because Gary Sanchez has a good season. But he also, one thing that he always does, and Nate, this is what you just touched on, which is so interesting, is you'll ask him a question about like someone saying this or someone doing this, or whatever, and it's just like, I don't care. And you know, he says it in kind of a standoffish way, but he doesn't mean it. He literally means, I don't care. Like, I have finally learned not to care mm-hmm. about what this person is saying or what this person is doing or what kind of playing time this person is giving me or anything like that. I don't care. I'm going to prepare every day as though I'm the starting catcher. I'm going to do absolutely everything I can to make this team better but I'm going to only worry about literally what I can control. And that takes a lot to do well. And it's impressive how good he is at it. It, it takes a lot. It takes a, a special person because there's a lot of people that can't do that for sure. And that was really what his wife imparted on him was just do what you can control. Just worry, excuse me, just worry about what you can control. And that's playing 
to the best of your ability and it's working as hard as you can. And one thing he talked about along those same lines was the fact that, and this did remind me of the Jason Giambi story, which I was, I think, writing simultaneously to doing this interview and, you know, and writing both stories at the same time. And there's a tremendous parallel because they both gave me almost the, uh, the exact same quote, but about different circumstances. Jason Giambi talking about being accountable and the big, the best thing about the decision that he made to be accountable and, the, t- and the, the tough things that he endured in that was that he could later tell his children, this is what I did, and he could stand by it. And in the same breath, Austin Romine said almost the exact same thing. I didn't quit baseball. I worked as hard as I could. I did the things that I needed to do. And the greatest part about that is that I can now tell my children proudly, this is what you need to do when you're in this situation. And both of those guys literally gave the same message about very, very different things. But Austin Romine came to the realization that his ability, his physical ability was there. He just mentally needed to really change things. But most importantly, he didn't give up. It's an awesome lesson. It's an awesome story. Thank uh, you. Mr. Consistent. It is in the June issue of Yankees Magazine. We've had a lot of fun talking with you about it today. We hope that you'll come out this weekend to the stadium. Obviously, like Nate said, we have Old Timers Day where you'll be able to get a special cover. But on any of the other days, you can pick up Yankees Magazine, read all these stories. You can subscribe at yankees.com slash publications, or you can read the long-form content that we post at yankees.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at Yanks Magazine. Come hang out with us on the podcast, yankees.com slash podcast. Please, please, please subscribe, rate, and review us. If you love us, tell us why. If you don't love us, tell us that you love us anyhow. We are completely okay with you lying in these situations. We will speak to you in two weeks when we'll be able to talk probably a little bit about, Al, your experiences in London and also talk about i think at that point we might even have all-star rosters which we'll be able to chat about as well so stick with us we love hanging out with you on this podcast we hope you're enjoying it too letters at yankees.com podcast at yankees.com you can email us at either one of those or frankly at both of them and just tell us what you think tell us what you want us to talk about and we look forward to speaking with you we'll see you in two weeks have a good one bye hi this is tommy canely for more stories like the ones you've been hearing about Subscribe to Yankees Magazine by visiting yankees.com slash publications or by calling 800-GO-YANKS. The MLB Ballpark app will complete your next visit to Yankee Stadium. Buy and manage game tickets, redeem special check-in offers, access exclusive content, and much more. Download the MLB Ballpark app today by visiting yankees.com backslash ballpark app. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? Bow. 
and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.